Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to episode seven of the second series of Bolus. And today's episode is with Professor Adele Fielding, who is a haematology professor at UCL. As a clinical scientist, Adele is heavily involved in the UK's clinical trials program for ALL and is chief investigator of UCAL 14 and UCAL 60 plus. So we actually covered quite a bit of ground when we were chatting to Adele without realizing it. I think we talked for over an hour. Some of what we talked about, we haven't obviously got room to include in this episode, but we will be including it in later episodes. I think one really interesting thing we talked about was the role of the Philadelphia chromosome in ALL. That was one of the first or the first proven genetic abnormality found in cancers. We talked about the role of transplant, which is sometimes a treatment needed in older patients with ALL as well. Do you think we could just start with a little bit of a definition or a sort of understanding of what ALL is? Okay, so ALL is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Acute means it's something that comes on suddenly. So that's important because it's not a disease that people have had for a long time that hasn't gone diagnosed. And that's something that people really do freak out about is how long I had this Mm -hmm. and so forth. Lymphoblastic means that it arises from cells which are destined to become lymphocytes, so they're part of your immune system. And I think that word confuses people sometimes as well, because what is a blast, you know, but it really is just an abnormal, an immature precursor. And leukemia means a cancer of the blood-forming cells, essentially. So that's what acute lymphoblastic leukemia is. So AML is a very early progenitor cell of the myeloid line and ALL is the lymphoid progenitor. Are there many similarities or uh, differences between the two diseases? Um, There's similarities in as much as when the patients first become unwell, the types of symptoms that people would get wouldn't necessarily be different between the two diseases because a lot of the symptoms people get arise from the fact that their bone marrow is not working properly mm-hmm. um, and therefore they can't make uh, red cells so they become anemic and tired and all the things that go with that. Because they don't make normal white cells properly, they get more predisposed to infection and because they don't make the little uh, cells that help your blood clot platelets very well, then they're more prone to bruising and bleeding. So any of those things can happen in any of the acute leukemias. Um, There's a few differences in the clinical presentations of ALL and AML. So in ALL, I think you're more likely to get um, sort of tissue-based disease. So ALL can arise from either T lymphocytes or B lymphocytes. So we call it T or B precursor ALL. And if you have T precursor ALL, you're much more likely to have um, enlarged lymph nodes or perhaps even a big spleen and liver and things like that. So that's pretty common in ALL. It's also less common to have your bone marrow function completely destroyed. So in AML, patients often really do not have very good bone marrow function. But sometimes in ALL, patients can have the disease but still have reasonable blood counts. So somehow that disease seems to be able to coexist with normal bone marrow function a little bit better. But by and large, if you spoke to a patient and asked them about their symptoms, you wouldn't really discern a lot of difference between the two diseases. So it's only when you start to really have a look more deeply that you can distinguish those things. And obviously that's done during the diagnostic procedure. And is it ever difficult to distinguish between an acute leukemia on the lymphoid side and a lymphoma, or is there, can there be uh, overlap? Yes, yeah, so that's a very important and uh, useful question. So. 
as I've mentioned to you previously, there are, especially in TALL, the lymphoblasts, the abnormal cells often do hang out in the tissues. And as you, I'm sure, aware, that's lymphomas are normally tissue-based diseases, diseases which are in the lymph nodes and other anatomical structures. And so there's, there's a crossover. So you can have a condition called lymphoblastic lymphoma, which is probably a spectrum of disorders. So although we're talking about leukemia because that means there are abnormal cells in the blood, you can get lymphoblastic lymphoma, which is the same type of cells that comprise ALL, but instead of being predominantly in the bone marrow and spilling out into the blood, they're predominantly in the tissues. And it's thought that these diseases are probably a continuum of one another, uh, but that can be quite confusing for patients and staff at times, whether to call it ALL yeah. or whether to call it lymphoblastic lymphoma. So there's a technical definition, which is probably not terribly helpful. Your bone marrow needs to contain at least 25% lymphoblasts for it to be called ALL. But obviously they're a continuum because you could have 20% or 30%, yeah. you know, but you still have the sa essentially the same disease. And so that's why those diseases are treated the same as each other. So if you have lymphoblastic lymphoma, um, it's treated in the same way that you would treat ALL, uh, even though it's got lymphoma in it. <laughs> Um, and that can be, I think it's quite confusing and difficult to explain to people, actually. And are they, those patients looked after by yourselves, leukaemia yes. consultants? Or the yes. So I think that's where our, yeah. our nurses come. Who so do they that is confusing, like? actually. <laughs> and um, I think that it's probably changed over the years. So I'm going to say maybe 20 years ago, uh, lymphoblastic lymphomas would be treated as lymphoma. And they were often treated under the care of lymphoma physicians using lymphoma treatment regimens. But the outcome was quite poor. And eventually people started trying leukemia regimens with them and the outcome was much improved. So by and large, I think in most hospitals, although maybe in some they're still treated by the lymphoma team, we, we choose to treat them under the leukemia service simply because we're more familiar with the types of treatment regimen um, and the toxicities and how to deliver them and it just makes sense. So we've gone through saying that the presentation is slightly similar to what we went through with AML. Yeah. So they've been diagnosed. So what does the diagnostic process look like for you guys? What's the first steps? Would it be very much similar to how they would diagnose AML? Yeah, so it's pretty similar. So we use all the same uh, techniques and tests, but we're looking for slightly different things. So obviously we are in a lucky situation with these types of diseases because often patients will have the abnormal cells in their blood. Uh, and if not, uh, we do a bone marrow examination, which I'm sure has been discussed in your podcast. So mm. that's where we stick a small needle uh, directly into the bone marrow, normally in somebody's hip bone at the back. And that can be an uncomfortable and scary procedure for patients. But it does allow us to access an enormous amount of uh, cancer cells right off. And all that doesn't sound like a benefit, in terms of diagnosing something like pancreatic cancer, which is very hard to access and hard to biopsy and difficult to get tissue, because we get a lot of tissue here, we can do a lot of diagnostic tests on that bone marrow. So once the bone marrow has been taken, the first thing that's done is for the simplest thing, which is spread it out on a slide uh, and it gets stained up and uh, one of the diagnostic lab physicians looks at it and looking at it directly, you can actually see the cancer cells under the microscope, but you can't really tell whether they're ALL or AML. You can tell that they're abnormal and that there's something there that shouldn't be there. So the next set of tests are normally what's looking at what's on the surface of the cell. So just like a human being has a face, 
that's recognisable and distinct from uh, other human beings. Cells have got markers on the surface of them that you can't see with the naked eye, but you can have antibodies that stick to those markers that can then be detected as the cells go through a certain type of machine called a flow cytometer. And that will essentially give you a signature of what the cell looks like on the surface. And there are certain things that make it very clear that that is a B cell or a T cell. The le acute leukemias often don't have normal T or B cell markers that you would have, but it's pretty obvious usually to work out quite quickly whether that is um, a myeloid versus a lymphoid cell or whether it's of T or B cell origin. So there are circumstances where it's ambiguous and you can get mixed lineage leukemias or you can get very early leukemias that is hard to diagnose because they don't have many surface markers at all. But the vast majority of patients are very easy to diagnose. Um, and that must be a relief for patients, I think, because I think sometimes because they don't see the complexity of what goes on in the diagnostic lab, they can be concerned, you know, that the diagnosis is correct and that's uh, reasonable. It's important to try and explain to patients how the diagnosis is made to some extent because I think you go from being a healthy person who has had a short illness to being somebody who's got a life-threatening disease and oftentimes you don't get much time to think about that before before you have to start treatment and people in a, in a weird way don't ask as many questions as as you would think they would yeah. <laughs> I think they're so stunned you know so I think understanding something about the diagnostic process is important for whoever looks after the patient because sometimes it's good to explain to people how we know mm -hmm. that they have these diseases so once we've done the flow cytometry, we normally have a pretty good idea at that point that the patient has ALL. And so all the other tests are directed at trying to subclassify the ALL. So the first thing we want to know is do they have the Philadelphia chromosome? And that's important because it changes the approach to treatment. Uh, so what we're always looking for are things that might change how we treat the patient. So Philadelphia chromosome totally changes the treatment. So why does that happen? Yeah, why does that, why okay, does that so happen? Do you know? Why? <laughs> Nobody knows. Exactly. So that's an important thing as well to, to understand is that the vast majority of cases of all types of leukemia and blood cancers, there's no particular reason why they happen. So we don't know why they happen in terms of like, you know, why this happened to you and not somebody else. But once you have it, we know a lot about the biology and they're two completely different things. Why did this happen to me? and what's actually happening in the cells in this disease. They're different questions. And to the first one, we don't have an answer. But to the second one, we know an awful lot. And so the Philadelphia chromosome is very interesting because it was the first ever chromosomal abnormality that was discovered as part of cancer. And it's called Philadelphia because it was discovered in Philadelphia. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and it was originally discovered um, in chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, yes. which also has the Philadelphia chromosome. And what it essentially means is that a bit of chromosome 9 breaks off and sticks to chromosome 22 and vice versa. And what you end up having is a completely new type of protein formed. So when you get bits of genetic material that stick together, they ultimately get translated and they make proteins. And this particular protein signals within the cell in an abnormal way. So the signaling gets continued and the wrong messages are sent through the cell. And we know very specifically now uh, about that protein, which we call BCR ABLE. And that's two genes stuck together, BCR and ABLE, that are not normally together with each other. And therefore, 
they send a very wrong message to the cell. Mm. Why that happens in the first place, why one person would develop that abnormality, we don't know. And it's also important, I think, to note that that abnormality is only present in your cancer cells. So that's thing, a, a thing that people get anxious about is they think that if they have a genetic abnormality, because it's the word genetic, it must mean something that's inherited. They worry about their families. They worry about passing it on and so forth. But that's not the case. It's just an abnormality in the cancer cells themselves. Okay. And it can happen in someone who's three years old and someone who's 83 years old. And, it can. And what's different about those? Uh, well, those? it's very, it, as, as, a, as a proportion of patients, so the reason that the Philadelphia chromosome is important in ALL is that it, in adults, it affects approximately 25 to 30% of the adult population, although it's quite unusual in childhood ALL. So it's probably only 1% to 2% of childhood ALL. Okay. Um, and the other reason that it's important is because we know so much about it and because we've identified so many elements in the pathway, we now have specific targeted drugs that can be used to treat Philadelphia-positive ALL. So as you're probably aware, Presently, the mainstay of treating people with ALL who, who are newly diagnosed is chemotherapy, various combination chemotherapy drugs. But with Philadelphia positive ALL, the class of drugs called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and they've been specifically designed to bind to the abnormal protein and prevent it signaling. So it doesn't then carry on telling the cell to do the wrong thing. And those drugs have revolutionized the treatment of Philadelphia positive ALL. So in the past, when you had the Philadelphia chromosome in ALL, it used to be rather negative. Yeah. Uh, these days, it's certainly neutral in terms of outcome, but potentially positive because we have targeted agents and can be added to chemotherapy. And there's an increasing evidence that you can use less chemotherapy for these patients so that they can still get the same amount of benefit with, with a less toxicity. So that's a very important thing to know about. And we're looking at approximately one quarter of our patients in the adult setting that, that have this abnormality. So, yeah, because my, my view of it, um, as you say, was quite negative. It but used actually, to be very negative. Yeah. So actually there is targeted therapy that they add to existing yes, regimes. Yes, yeah. And, and so there have been numerous uh, trials that have demonstrated the benefit of these novel agents. And those trials have been carried out in many countries around the world. But it's also important, I think, to... I always talk about this when I meet with patients who've got newly diagnosed leukaemias because people are concerned sometimes that... They won't get the best treatment in the UK, you know, yeah, and um, sure. I'm sure that's a common concern because we have the NHS, a socialised medicine system. People sometimes are under the impression that there are drugs out there that they can't get because the NHS won't pay for them. And uh, I think it's important to note that the UK has been one of the world leaders in in doing trials that treat patients with acute leukemias. And a lot of the stuff that we know about ALL, there's been a massive contribution from the UK, from our patients and physicians who do enter these studies. And so that's how we know that the uh, TKIs work because they've been tested in very large studies. Um, and the UK was a big contributor to that information. But there are increasing recognition of other genetic lesions in ALL that might also change the treatment. So that's happened in AML, as you've probably seen in the last year. There's been uh, an outpouring of new agents approved that yeah. are used in certain circumstances. So now it makes sense why you need to know the FLIP3 status yeah, or... Yeah, my and things. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. we have yeah. new agents and that's, yeah. you know, 
to some extent um, hasn't quite happened in ALL yet. So we don't have a new agent for every targeted lesion, but we certainly understand a huge amount about the genetics. So do you use it to risk stratify yes. in the way you can with AML? So we do. So yeah. that's the main reason for knowing things other than the Philadelphia chromosome. It's not necessarily that we have a target that we can that we can attack, but it helps us to find out what the prognosis of the patient might be. Um, and in ALL, uh, we are currently classifying people in high risk and standard risk as far as adults are concerned. Classification is a little different in childhood ALL because the outcome for ALL is a continuum. So younger patients have the best. So below the age of 10, your chances of being cured are probably 95%. And as you get older and older, the chances of being cured get less but also the genetics of the disease completely change. So like we said that Philadelphia uh, positive ALL is present in about 25% of patients, only 2% of children. Uh, abnormalities like ETV6, RONX1 are present in 25% of children and virtually no adults. So they're almost different diseases genetically, even though they present the same. And what we currently have is the treatment is largely the same. So it is important to know what the genetic lesions are. So at the moment, it's important in stratifying patients as to whether they would need a bone marrow transplant or not. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was going to um, ask about that. Because that's an important thing. Yeah. And, and that's also quite... Uh, so along with the age of the patient, uh, how high the white cell count is when they walk through the door, because that just gives you a rough idea how much disease they have on board, what the different genetic lesions are. And then, as you know, we also do this test called minimal residual disease. So at the end of the first and second cycles of treatment, as opposed to just looking down the microscope, we can do a very sensitive molecular test that's based on the patient's own specific, uh, because it's a lymphoblast that becomes abnormal, each one of those things, cells, is, is unique because it's going to be a lymphocyte that has been rearranged to be unique. So you know that in your body you've got lymphocytes that are unique for every pathogen you've ever met. And the way that is, is because the genetics of those cells mean at the time when they're beginning to develop, they're rearranging lots of genes. So as these cells become cancerous, they're in the process of rearranging these genes and every patient has their own specific um, rearrangement that's very specific to their ALL clone. So we generate a patient-specific assay that will tell us very precisely how much of disease is left in that patient, even below the limit of what we can normally see in the lab. And that's the final element of the stratification. Mm -hmm. So if patients have, um, you know, oftentimes you will not find any genetic abnormalities at diagnosis and they might have a low presenting white cell count by the end of two phases of treatment, if they nonetheless still have disease present, then that puts them up into the higher risk group as well. So we have a few different stages at which we consider whether they might need a bone marrow transplant. And again, that's tricky, you know, it's tricky for patients and staff because sometimes we don't know till the last minute yeah, uh, because they might have standard risk disease. And then all of a sudden we realize that although they're in remission and everything seems to be going fine, they've got minimal residual disease at the end of phase two and that they shouldn't have. And therefore they've they've shifted up to high risk. And so we need to be... I think that's slightly difficult, isn't it? Because on diagnosis, you want to see whether they have siblings, you know, for yes. testing. So you've so already kind of put it in their test. head at the start, haven't you? So I think that's quite important as well for patients and staff to understand that we 
because we don't want to find out at the last minute that someone needs a transplant have not done any of the workup but because then it would take too long and there would be delays and things like that so we always institute a donor screen a diagnosis because if patients do have sisters and brothers we do need to know the tissue type of the patient and potential sisters and brothers and then we only go for an unrelated donor screen if the patient's high risk and we know they're going to need a transplant mm. Uh, but we do as much as we can on that behind the scenes. But I think that's quite difficult because you obviously have to speak to patients and relatives about it at diagnosis. Yeah. Mm. And you're speaking about something quite theoretical then and quite yeah. scary. Yeah. And oftentimes patients will ask a lot, yeah. in my experience, about transplant, even when the chances of their having one is quite remote. And it's quite hard to know how much to tell people. Yeah. So personally, I say to people, until we know you have a donor... I'll never talk about transplant until there's a donor because it's not theoretically possible unless you have a donor. So that's what I just say because hmm. it's a lot of information. I think people probably ideally should try and focus on the diagnosis yeah. that they have and the treatment that they're undergoing. But because bone marrow transplant's a big thing, it really yeah. does. And it involves the, well, physically involves the family, doesn't it, as well? Yes, so it there's does. Lots of yeah. Discussion. Yeah. I'm sure they have lots of questions from their family yeah, members from, from about yeah. it, which they yeah. then feel they have to relay. I mean, that's the other thing about questions. So it's quite common to be in a room with people when you're explaining the diagnosis to them, you know, and appropriate, that they have relatives, friends, whoever they want in the room with them. And that can be quite a circus at times, as I'm sure you've all seen. Yeah. Um, and what can be weird and difficult to deal with is when friends and family members ask a question that you can see that the patient themselves does not want to ask. Mm. I'm sure you guys have that experience mm. all the time, and that's quite hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't, yeah, you're not quite <laughs> sure what to. Someone in the corner pipes up. Yeah, yeah. How long do they have to live there? Yeah, how long? How long yeah. have they got? Yeah. How long they got then? You know, yeah. the person's only been through the door five minutes. Yeah. Uh, and sort of you don't want to make people think because obviously we always try to tell the truth to everyone. Yeah. It's critically important to give the correct information. But sometimes you don't know the answer to these things. You've not even done half the tests and you can never predict the future. And that's what people sometimes ask you to do. Yes. You know, they don't want to, they want you to say, what will happen to me? And you don't know that because you can be a doctor and a nurse for 30 years, but you can't predict the future. Yeah, exactly. You can only predict the statistical likelihood of something that might happen in the future. And that's quite hard for people to come to terms with because yeah. we always work in, what has happened in the past gives us an idea what might happen in the future, but people think that that means that's what will happen in the future and dealing with that level of uncertainty. And I think that um, it takes longer to explain uncertainty to someone than it just gives to tell than it takes to just give them an answer. Yeah. And therefore, sometimes you get miscommunication happens because people will say, oh, don't worry, you'll be all right. Or they'll say, do I have to wear a mask? Yes, you do, because it's easier than explaining why the masks don't work. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I think that's quite important to be able to reflect ambiguity when ambiguity really exists, because people don't like ambiguity whatsoever. You know, they want to know that if they do this, then this will definitely happen. Or if they avoid that, then that will definitely not happen. And of course, our real life isn't like that. No. But I remember when um, we had um, a young chap diagnosed on the ward about two years ago. And you did the initial diagnosis discussion with him. 
And I just remember learning so much from what you said because you were in there like an hour and you went through everything because they were talking about wanting to go private or to the US and oh, you were yeah, bringing it yeah. right back to, and it was just so good. Mm. And that's why we try and encourage like the nurses to go in and listen because yeah. what I learned, you said about the whole journey and I was just listening. <laughs> then afterwards, obviously none of it went in to the, them or their family, but I heard it all. So then I was able to repeat that throughout yeah. the day to the That's something we should so talk good. about more to patients as well, about why other members of staff come in. Because certainly some patients don't like having an audience, yeah. you know, and I've got particular mm. patients who said, can I not just talk to you on my own? Yeah. Why do I always have to see you with a bunch of other people? Because it really freaks me out. It's I horrible. Yeah. I, I, I was a patient uh, and was just having a surgical procedure years ago, but I remember laying on the bed and having an audience around me standing up, and I really yeah. felt, oh my God, this feels awful. Yeah, so, I would hate it too. Yeah. Right? yeah. These were surgeons, no, no disrespect to surgeons, but it was very black and white and out there. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think we do make an effort, and particularly with our consultants, they get, you know, you, the little things like you sit down, yeah, yeah, get on yeah. their level and talk normally to them, like they're, rather than all this kind of medical terminology. And that will help us, because when I was listening to you, I was like, okay, I know exactly his plan now for the next eight months, and I can repeat that for the next week to all his family that didn't really take That's it That's a real thing that we don't think about enough, I think, is like getting the consistency of the message. Because you say one word out of place to someone who's freaked out. Mm. Yes. And that's the word that sticks. Not any of the common sense or any of the, you know, yeah. kindness or anything. They just get fixated on the thing that freaked them out. Yeah, absolutely. When you kind of compare the treatment for AML, like, you know, maybe four courses of yes. intensive chemo, kind of back to back. Yes. To what you do with ALL, with yes. the kind of the prolonged period of maintenance. Like, what... Why is it so different the way the, the two diseases are treated? Uh, some, of, some of it's based on historical what was always done and mm -hmm. some of it's based on sort of firm evidence. So the treatments for the diseases when they were first being developed probably didn't differ as much as they do now. So there was a lot more commonality. So the types of drugs that we use in AML and the types of drugs that we use in ALL have, do have some overlap. So you know that we use anthracyclines mm -hmm. and that we use cytarabine uh, in AML and those drugs are used in ALL too. But certainly uh, the very high doses of anthracyclines and cytarabine don't really have that much benefit in ALL and that's known because it's been tested in clinical trials so people have attempted to push the doses up and not found any benefit and likewise um, if we think about how children with ALL are treated they're treated with very dose intensive therapy but not myelosuppressive dose intensive therapy so drugs like vincristine asparaginase and steroids are part of the mainstay of ALL treatment but they don't really suppress your bone marrow all that much um, whereas the AML, as you know, they have these very prolonged periods of neutropenia, which we try and avoid in ALL if possible. So you'll notice that some of the patients with ALL during induction one, if they have a reasonable blood count at diagnosis, they don't even become neutropenic. So they, mm -hmm. they can tolerate the treatment better. So regarding maintenance, it's an interesting question. So nobody really knows exactly why maintenance works. Uh, so maintenance therapy is two to three years of outpatient-based treatment where patients take 6-mercaptopurin daily, methotrexate once a week, 
and they have pulses, which are normally four or five days of steroids combined with vincristine. And that's usually given approximately every three months. And there's a lot of evidence that if you don't do that, so if you shorten the duration of maintenance or you don't give maintenance, there's a, a much higher rate of relapse. But what we don't really know is exactly why that very prolonged um, sort of modest intensity chemotherapy works. Um, because it doesn't work in other diseases. So there are studies in the past where they've attempted some kind of maintenance in AML and it didn't have any benefit. Mm. So there's quite a lot of, I guess, some of it speculation about why maintenance is beneficial, but there's enough clinical trial evidence to demonstrate that it really is. So in my lab, we're quite interested in um, trying to understand something like that. And it might be not necessarily due to the fact that the drugs are killing the leukemia cells, because we're only getting blocks of drugs every three months and you're taking fairly low dose every day so it might have something about the impact on the microenvironment so obviously the bone marrow is a complex tissue most people don't really think of bone marrow as an organ as such you know you mm. think about your liver and your spleen and your kidneys and those things are really obvious but the bone marrow itself is an organ it's a, a blood forming and immune system forming organ and it consists of <coughs> numerous types of cells and when you have leukemia though some of those cells play a role in maintaining the leukemia so even though they're not themselves cancerous they adapt to change in certain ways that they can provide assistance to the cancer cells so there's lots of ways in which normal bone marrow cells communicate with the cancer cells in many ways aiding them protecting them from chemotherapy donating different elements to them and that might be some of the ways in which maintenance works because as with some evidence that it's the connections between the bone marrow uh, stromal cells and the leukemia cells can be broken by some of these drugs mm -hmm. rather than just directly killing the cells. Uh, but it's a very interesting question and has not yet fully been answered scientifically. Well, you can go and research that then. <laughs> and it's not the sort of thing that um, I think that nurses don't see too much, right, on the ward. No, not no. at all. Uh, because no. when the patients are on maintenance, they're very largely back at work. Yeah. So they're usually at the point of maybe attending the clinic once a month and they normally just take their drugs in between times and they're often pretty well. So although it's pretty horrible to hear that you have to take two years of treatment, Compared to the very intensive treatment, uh, you know, people largely, you know, children are back at school and adults are back at work during that time. So with the first cycle of treatment, yes, is that always done as an inpatient? Largely, it's largely done as an inpatient, although you probably notice that a lot of the patients don't become very unwell during yes. the first cycle. Yeah. And as you also know, we have an ambulatory care unit where a lot of patients go for subsequent cycles, which works really well yeah. for them. I think it's a little bit about the patient feeling confident enough to understand whether they're ill or not ill and what they need to report. Because uh, if you put someone into ambulatory care immediately, even if they were well and they hadn't had an experience of being ill during treatment, they might not know what to report. So it, it can be frustrating, I think, when people are inside the hospital and they feel very well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's worthwhile having at least a, a few weeks of being with us. Um, because they do get a lot of support from the nurses yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, and they get some ideas about how to evaluate their own condition and some confidence in using the words because it's like a whole new language you have to learn, yeah. isn't it? You didn't know any of these words mostly when you get diagnosed with leukemia. Yeah. So hard as it is for the staff to learn, think about yeah. the, <laughs> how hard Absolutely. it is for the patients to learn. Good. Fantastic. That was... That, Thank you so much. Yeah, that was that incredible. That was fantastic. That was brilliant. <laughs> I've learned so much yeah. there. Well, that's good.